You're listening to the Harris Beach Podcast, a show that explores evolving issues in the law and how they shape organizations, the way business is conducted, and how we live and work. The information provided in this episode does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials are for general informational purposes only. Thanks for listening. Here's today's host. Welcome to the Harris Beach Podcast. I'm today's host, Melissa Peterson. The odds that legalization of recreational adult use marijuana in New York State have never been better. At the start of 2021, Governor Andrew Cuomo introduced his plan, the Cannabis Regulation and Tax Act, CRTA, and positioned the tax benefits of legalization as a way to help offset pandemic-related deficits. In many ways, the CRTA conflicts with the Senate-introduced Marijuana Regulation and Tax Act, MRTA, which addresses some political hot-button issues, including the creation of a social equity fund and reducing criminal penalties for illegal sale of marijuana. While we are still hearing some debate on how the state will get there, it seems as if it is only a matter of time before legislation passes to legalize recreational use. For businesses looking to enter the burgeoning market in New York State, or simply those that will be impacted by it, questions remain. To help navigate this issue, I'm joined today by Megan Feenan and Morgan Hopkins, two notable voices in this space. Megan is an attorney on the Harris Beach Cannabis Industry Team and a well-known participant on this podcast channel. Morgan Hopkins is a CPA at DeJoy, Knopf, and Blood and the director of its Hemp and Cannabis Services. Today, they're going to touch on the key issues that organizations statewide and beyond should be thinking about as legalization approaches. As a follow-up, in early April, they're going to host a happy hour Q&A via Zoom, where they'll take live questions from attendees. It's a great opportunity to get into more specifics, and we'll tell you how to sign up at the end of this episode. Welcome, Megan and Morgan. Megan, I'll start with you. As we sit here in mid-March, what are the expectations that legalized adult-use marijuana is part of the New York State budget on April 1st? So chances are pretty good. For those who don't know, it's pretty typical in New York that a bill having anything to do with tax revenue will be incorporated into the state's annual budget bill presented on or around April 1st of each year. The governor released his proposal to legalize recreational cannabis in New York in January, which is being referred to as the Cannabis Regulation and Taxation Act. Among other provisions, that proposal established an Office of Cannabis Management strict licensing and advertising requirements, and set up a tax structure projected to bring in more than $300 million in revenue when fully up and running. He then updated that proposal last month, which appeared to be a nod to the Senate's version of cannabis legalization, the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act. The governor's amended proposal authorized the use of delivery services like Uber Eats or Grubhub for cannabis products, reduce criminal penalties for illegal sales, and set aside $100 million of revenue for a social equity fund to be administered by the Empire State Development Corporation. So we don't know exactly what the final bill will look like at this point, but we expect its structure to look something like what has been proposed and amended this winter and believe that that final proposal will be incorporated into the state's larger budget bill, traditionally introduced at the end of March or start of April. Only a few weeks away. Uh, Morgan, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, expected tax revenue is the major driver of legalization right now. 
what is effective tax rate under the CRTA and MRTA? Well, it's a really interesting question. And um, before I dive too deep into the numbers, let me mention a couple of key concepts here. When it comes to cannabis products, uh, market data has shown that consumers will be willing to spend a little bit more for regulated cannabis than they would for traditional black market cannabis. Why is that? Well, safety, insulation from criminal activity, it could be a premium experience, consistent product, reliable supply, et cetera, the list goes on. But there, there's a limit to that premium that consumers are willing to pay. So as an example, if you're used to purchasing cannabis from the black market, you might pay somewhere in the neighborhood of $20 to $30 for an eighth of an ounce. And depend, that, of course, depends on your location, the time of year, the quality, who you know, et cetera. If you're a consumer of cannabis, you might be willing to pay a little bit more than that. How much more? Well, um, economists who are frankly, way smarter than me, uh, have already crunched those numbers, so we don't have to guess. Um, consumers are willing to pay between 8 to 12% more for legal cannabis than they would for black market cannabis. That's kind of the sweet spot where you would start to discourage consumption via the black market. Once you start to get north of that figure, that legality premium just isn't worth it to consumers. So how does that relate to the CRTA and the MRTA? Well, tax rates are really just kind of the artificial implementation of that legality premium. It's the regulatory cost that's laid on top of a previously unregulated product. Naturally, based on what I just explained, which you'd think a target tax rate might be on adult use cannabis would be about 8 to 12%, right? Well, the CRTA provides for a $1 per pound dry weight cultivation tax a 20% tax on the wholesale of the product, which is where the distributor is selling the product to the retailer, and then an additional 2% local tax on that wholesale invoice price. So remember when I mentioned before that $25 ace? Well, the same product under the CRTA would probably run you about $35. So it works out to about a 40% legality premium. That's quite a bit more than even the top side of the 8 to 12%. Right. The MRTA is a little bit better, but not by a whole lot. So it contains a 18% wholesale tax, a 3% local wholesale tax, and a 1% wholesale, what I call surtax, um, which is for cities and localities that have a population of more than a million people. So assuming that you purchase your ACE in a municipality with a population of more than a million, you'd pay $30 for it. So that's a combined about 22% premium on that $25 ACE. So these tax rates, in my opinion, could potentially stress the success of the program because if people don't buy the product, the program doesn't work which is precisely the issue we've seen in places like California, which has struggled to reduce black market activity. Their rates are in the, in the 30s and they've had this problem. Whereas if you look at Colorado, they've been able to have a wildly successful program and their, their um, price per pound is 
significantly lower than the rest of the country. So really what that tells me is when the tax rate makes sense, people are going to buy it. When people buy it, program works. That makes sense. So switching gears a little bit, what do businesses entering this space need to understand about U.S. tax code 280E and its challenges? What are some accounting policies that would support minimizing uh, 280E? So I'll, I'll try my absolute best to make the Internal Revenue Code a little bit fun. So uh, even if New York State were to legalize adult use recreational marijuana, it would still be illegal under federal law. So let's just make sure that's real clear here. And what that means is that um, the Internal Revenue Code's got this section 280E, and all it says is that if you are engaged in what is deemed to be a drug trafficking illegal business, you are only allowed to deduct your cost of goods sold. Any of those other ordinary and necessary business deductions that you're used to taking against your business income just aren't deductible. So let that sink in for a minute. If you own a cannabis business, you can only deduct cost of goods sold. That's a huge deal. It, what it really means is that uh, you know, for our experienced business people out there that are listening today, instead of your federal taxable income being your net income, it's going to be your gross margin. You might be asking yourself, what's not cost of goods sold? Because, you know, what are those expenses I'm losing? Well, it's going to be rent for your retail facility. It could be retail or office payroll. Uh, it could be office supplies. Anything that normally would have fallen into that selling general and administrative cost, all of those items are going to be non-deductible. So there's ways that you can control some of the impact. As an example, you could focus your energy on really carefully tracking your employees' time. So let's say for a second that you have a retail facility and it's set up kind of like a uh, like an Ashley home store. You've got a floor and it shows you all of the products that's available. And then you go in the back and grab the box for the consumer. In this example, the re retail facility's got the products out there. You've got your employees that are consulting with the customer on what products they'd like to purchase. And then they take their badge, they swipe and walk into the warehouse to pull the product. So if you track their time, when they're in the warehouse, that warehousing activity is a cost of goods sold. So you can allocate a portion of their payroll against your cost of goods sold, whereas their time interfacing with the customer would actually be a sales cost and it wouldn't be deductible. So I've seen some cannabis companies that have gotten really advanced on this, where each of their employees wears a badge and that badge has an RFID tag on it. And it just tracks them everywhere they go, and it automatically allocates payroll based on the employee's location at any point in time. It's a really interesting concept, but you can get as meticulous as that in order to control some of the, the costs associated with operating your business. Make sure that they end up in your cost of goods sold rather than the selling general administrative cost bucket. There may also, in very limited situations, be logical splits between your business operations. There may be components of your business that could be segregated. 
under audit, the IRS has on multiple occasions disallowed these schisms um, between a cannabis-related business and some other kind of business. Classic example is people who sell merch alongside their cannabis-related products and have segregated the, um, you know, sale of t-shirts and, you know, hats and things like that, and somehow argued that they're not part of their cannabis-related business. The IRS has said, time out, you can't do that. Everything that you're selling um, in the same facility is really just incidental to the operation of your cannabis business. However, if you're going to purchase your own facility, there may be um, some opportunity to actually segregate the building itself from your cannabis-related business and have, you know, create an arm's-length lease between the cannabis-related business and the rental real estate activity. That's a common practice, whether it's in a cannabis-related business or elsewise. A lot of businesses actually handle it that way, sometimes for financing reasons sometimes for um, tax planning. So there, there may be, as I said, in very limited situations, the ability to split up aspects of your, your activities to try to minimize how much of your income is going to be subject to those 280 restrictions. Okay, so you, it's necessary to be very familiar with the nuances of this code and, and accounting policies to kind of optimize business operations, it sounds like. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, really what it comes down to is you you have to consider how you are setting up your business, how you're setting up your IT framework, how you're setting up your um, operations for your hiring. It's not as simple as just you know finding the right people and sticking them in the right place. You have to really consider is this is this operation, is this choice I'm making going to end up uh, as a component of cost of goods sold or not? And start to make your business decisions surrounding that. It's a lot to think about. Oh, yeah. All right. Over to Megan again. What other big picture factors uh, should businesses be thinking about to get ahead of certain details prior to legalization? This could be packaging, labeling, advertising requirements site selection considerations, and any other factors to to keep in mind? Sure. So even though we don't have a final bill in front of us right now, that doesn't mean that businesses looking to participate in the industry in in some way shouldn't start preparing. Whether you're a manufacturer, a retailer, a distributor, or even a laboratory providing testing services, it's a definite that you're going to be required to meet certain licensing, packaging, advertising, and reporting requirements that will likely be set by this proposed Office of Cannabis Management. For example, manufacturers will have to contract with a state-approved laboratory and include access to testing information right on their products. Retailers will likely have to maintain their cannabis products separately from other products and avoid advertising to children similar to how tobacco and alcohol is handled. And all licensed businesses will be subject to certain record keeping and inspection requirements. Like Morgan explained, um, the taxation structure is multifaceted and very complex depending on the product type and weight and, and actually what kind of business you're operating. 
So each participant should also be prepared to implement a system where they can meet the state's taxation requirements. Retailers specifically could be preparing to meet site selection and zoning requirements when considering where to place their dispensary or their retail space, keeping in mind that the version of the CRTA that we currently have contemplates that counties and cities with more than 100,000 residents may be allowed to opt out of legalization completely. So again, we don't know exactly what this is going to look like and how it's going to play out, but businesses can expect this area to be highly regulated, similar to how tobacco and alcohol are, are currently handled in New York. And having someone who understands the intricacies of the legislation will be critical to the success of any business looking to participate in this space. So what if you're not a business looking to profit from adult use marijuana or really involved in this industry at all? You're simply operating in a state that's about to legalize. What do you need to begin preparing for in terms of workplace policies, screening, things like that? This is a great question, and I think it does get lost in the shuffle a bit because the reality is that all businesses, whether they're directly participating in the cannabis industry or not, are going to be impacted in some way by legalization. And the way this is going to play out for most operations is how they handle workplace policies and employment conditions. So of course, like everything else, it's a bit of an unknown in the absence of a final bill, but we can take clues from how medical marijuana has been treated and how recreational cannabis is treated by other states who have already legalized. For instance, the New York Human Rights Law currently considers anyone holding a prescription for medical marijuana to be disabled, which entitles them to certain workplace protections. In Massachusetts, employers are permitted to make their own policies regarding alcohol use in the workplace, and it appears that a lot of employers have taken the same approach with recreational marijuana. The difference here and what's going to be tricky is with testing. For alcohol use, we have methods to test individuals and pinpoint exactly how inebriated they are and what that means in terms of impairment. Generally, alcohol only stays in your system for 24 hours or so, so it's a lot easier to pinpoint. Marijuana use is, is much trickier. We know that marijuana, depending on what kind you use and how much, can stay in your system for up to two weeks after use. So if, if an employer is testing for use only for in the marijuana space, you may test positive even though you consumed marijuana two weeks ago. The inability to pinpoint the time and the quantity of use at this point will make regulation difficult. And the employer's tolerance for what being impaired means will depend on what type of work the employee is doing and the level of skill involved. So absent a test that can identify impairment, employers will have to be trained to identify signs of impairment in their workplace and cognizant of potential discrimination claims in doing so. At the end of the day, until we do have a test, this is going to be subject to employer discretion in setting their own workplace policies. And I would mention that we do have a another Hair Speech podcast coming out soon that will specifically address this issue and provide some examples of good practices for employers. 
I will close with a question for both of you. As I mentioned before, the two of you are hosting a live happy hour Q&A on Tuesday, April 6th. What other questions do you expect to hear and what would you encourage attendees to ask? I think that people have a lot of questions that are broad sweeping. How do I get involved? How do I uh, set up a business structure that makes sense? How much money do I need to have in my pocket to be able to start up? Those are the kinds of questions I typically get. What I'd encourage our uh, potential participants to do is to think about something that's a bit more specific. Think about things that um, are, are going to be hot button issues for what you think is the most important piece of what your prospective business will be. I think it's going to be easiest for us to provide some um, clarity surrounding uh, questions that are going to be more, more direct and more specific. Um, and, you know, if, if you've got questions about what the legislation says, that's another great question to ask. And I hope, I hope that people do because there's lots of nuances that Megan and I didn't even touch on today. Absolutely. I would, I would echo that with the caveat that hopefully by our Q&A, we will have a copy of what has been introduced in Congress and be able to answer some more specific questions. Um, if not, we can we can certainly take from what is currently out there and what we're seeing in, in this atmosphere. Um, but certainly come with whatever questions you have, and Morgan and I will do our best to answer them. Great. Yeah, if you can make the uh, IRS tax code fun, you can definitely make a happy hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Right. Uh, we thank Megan and Morgan for joining us today. For more information about how Harris Beach and DeJoy, Knopf and Blood can help you navigate the changing cannabis landscape, visit www.harrisbeach.com slash cannabis and www.teamdkb.com slash cannabis. You can also contact Megan and Morgan there and sign up for the April 6th Q&A happy hour. Thanks for listening to the Harris Beach Podcast. Be sure to visit harrisbeach.com to join the conversation and access show notes. Please rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast.